From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I am Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the pod, we have a man with all the answers to all the crazy questions we're facing today, Leon Panetta. Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, former Director of the CIA, former Congressman from Monterey, former Budget Director, former Chief of Staff to Bill Clinton. He has, he has really done it all in politics, and we have so many questions to talk to him about. Syria, North Korea, Stormy Daniels, is that a thing? Budget deficits, should Governor Brown send the National Guard to the, to the border? And we, we're here, we're joined by Leon Panetta, we're joined by his wife Sylvia. They are both getting an award from the Commonwealth Club on April 19th. They talk about their life together and their life in public service today on It's All Political. Secretary Panetta, Mrs. Panetta, welcome to It's All Political, or as our people say, benvenuti a tutti. Piacere, piacere mio. Buona, buona. Okay, now we have a lot to talk about from all corners of the world and we're touching on uh, your experiences as uh, Secretary of Defense, Director of the CIA, Budget Director, White House Chief of Staff, Congressman. Uh, Ms. Panetta, you ran the con- Congressional Office for years. You've been involved in crime, uh, uh, the Crime Task Force. And But we'd like to say we're having you both on today because on April 19th, the esteemed Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco is honoring you both for your lifetime of service, both in government and in the private sector, and in, and in sort of helping folks at the uh, Panetta Institute to sort of train the leaders of tomorrow. So congrats to both of you on that. And I believe tickets are still available for that, so you can check that out. Um, with all that's going on in the world, we've got so much to ask you, but I wanted to start with uh, quickly about how you two met. It was 60 years ago today, right? Or not today, but uh, this year. You guys met at a mixer at Santa Clara University where Leon was studying, and Sylvia, you were at Dominican. Um, and, and in 1962, you were married. But and Sylvia, Mrs. Panetta, I want to ask you about something. You encountered something that I think might have been a roadblock to many California relationships these days. Leon was a Republican in then, those days, correct? That's correct, and so was I. And so were you. So you're both Republicans. We uh, both came from... Uh, then what was considered a moderate state, moderate uh, um, state of California. Our families were moderate Republicans. Mm-hmm. That was, and this was back in the uh, early 60s. Mm-hmm. It was not uncommon that there were many Republicans who were moderate. And th- these, these Republicans have virtually disappeared from California. Do you recognize any of those sort of moderate Republicans these days in, uh, in the state? No, I still have friends uh, from Northern California who are Republicans and are moderate, sure. Mm-hmm. And then did you, when did you both, uh, I know uh, the Secretary, uh, he worked for the Nixon, first Nixon administration for a couple of years in the Civil Rights Division. When did you guys uh, become Democrats? Well, it, uh, you know, I, I began same as uh, Sylvia. Both of us uh, came out of the Hiram Johnson tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first job was with Tom Keekle, mm-hmm. was a uh, progressive uh, Republican, 
uh, in the United States Senate and um, had the chance to work for him as a legislative assistant. And in those days, it was a lot different, uh, as you've mentioned. A lot of moderate Republicans in the Senate, like Javits and Clifford Case and Hugh Scott and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it, it was the same in the California legislature as well. So a lot of that has changed. Just like Washington, uh, you don't see many moderate Republicans uh, around that much in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing's true here in California. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, uh, of course, at the top of everyone's mind right now is, is Syria. And uh, it was about a year ago today, almost exactly, Secretary, you were telling me, we talked for a story, that when the President Trump bombs Syria after those chemical attacks then, he set precedent. And you said to me, uh, do we now have to assume the responsibility every time to respond militar militarily? So now with that precedent set, what should the U.S.'s next move be? And Walk us through how those deliberations are traditionally made in the, in the Pentagon, the Situation Room, and the Oval Office. Well, I'll tell you, based on my experience, I can't tell you how it operates now. But, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, in my experience, uh, normally what would happen is that you'd have the National Security Council uh, come together, uh, and uh, it would provide options to the president for uh, actions to take. And uh, obviously, as Secretary of Defense, uh, we would develop uh, you know, what, what targets uh, should we go after, uh, whether we go after uh, airfields or uh, helicopters or planes that deliver that stuff or go after headquarters. We would identify a list of targets and then identify the means of uh, hitting those targets. And you'd, you'd have uh, different levels, obviously, of uh, uh, of attacks that would be provided to the president. Uh, it would be talked about. Everybody would express their opinion as to what should take place, and then the president uh, would normally make the decision as to what steps uh, are going to be taken. Uh, I do think it's important that, having drawn a line on the use of uh, chemical weapons, that uh, the United States cannot just sit back and allow that to happen without, without taking some action and without trying to get uh, our allies to work with us to make sure that we do everything possible to make sure that Assad does not do this in the future. That's, that's been the problem. He continues to, to do it. Uh, we've got to find a way to stop him from doing it. So do we have to ramp it up at this point? Last, last time we bombed airfields, they were repaired very quickly. What, do, we, do we ramp it up from last time, or what do we do now? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I think, uh, you know, on the military side, if, we, if we're going to do this, we have to do it in an effective way. But I, I think what needs to be done, frankly, is something that the United States hasn't done recently, which is to really build a strong alliance with France, with Great Britain, with other countries uh, that are concerned about this so that uh, we bring additional leverage against uh, Assad and Russia and Iran uh, to do the right thing. That has been missing uh, in this whole Syrian chaos uh, that we've witnessed. And there's got to be a better effort to try to combine not only uh, military efforts, but also diplomatic efforts. Uh, and frankly, uh, that's been missing from uh, the necessary leverage we need to apply to uh, Assad. How much harder is that going to be given 
this sort of America first policy that the president is uh, sort of engaged on. Uh, we, we don't have an, if we actually don't have a secretary of state uh, officially right now, uh, we, uh, you know, we're sort of in between uh, uh, the CIA directors and such. There's a lot of chaos there. How, what's the challenge given all that? I, I think there's a, there's a huge challenge because uh, uh, we really have had a great deal of instability in the national security team. We've lost the secretary of state. Uh, we, we have a new uh, national security advisor. Uh, this is a president who doesn't pay a lot of attention to uh, the advisors that he has, so uh, he tends to operate uh, a lot by his own gut instincts. So it, it becomes very, very difficult uh, to determine just exactly uh, what steps the United States is going to take in order to bring the kind of pressure that's necessary to change how Assad behaves. You were critical of uh, Obama's handling of Syria. You wrote in your, in your very fine memoir, which I, I will suggest, because there's a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff, it's called Worthy Fights, that Obama vacillated over the Syria strike, and you wrote, by failing to respond, it sent the wrong message to the world. How did he, Obama, set in motion what we have today? Well, I, look, I, I think uh, presidents of the United States... Uh, the most important thing uh, they have is their word uh, and the trust that others have in their word. And if the President of the United States establishes a line, uh, as President Obama did, on the use of chemical weapons, uh, I guess one can argue whether he should have established that line. I think he did the right thing uh, in doing it. Uh, once you establish that line, uh, then uh, clearly uh, if your word is going to be worth anything, you have to then take action uh, if they violate that line. Uh, they did. They used chemical weapons. Uh, and uh, I think the president was prepared to take action, uh, but then at the last minute backed away. And I think, unfortunately, that sent uh, a message uh, not only to our adversaries but to our allies uh, that uh, perhaps the United States would not stand by our word. And I think that that raised a concern uh, in terms of the status of the United States in the world. Um, North Korea, are you, we, we're, we're moving closer to the North and South are having some talks. Uh, the president's supposed to have talks in North Korea. Um, are you optimistic about that? And what cons what pitfalls are you concerned about there? I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, that the agreement to uh, develop a summit came in a very a uh, very fast uh, approach in which uh, Kim made the offer. Uh, the South Koreans brought it to Washington, and suddenly uh, the president agreed to have it, and now we're looking at a summit within the next 60 days. Uh, the amount of preparation, the amount of uh, work that has to be done in order to properly prepare the president to conduct that kind of uh, high-level summit uh, is just not adequate to properly prepare uh, this president uh, for that kind of uh, summit. Uh, Typ so typically, I, how long would that be? Would it be? Are we talking three months, six months to prepare? I for think something? I think you need at least. Uh, if if a president is going to do that kind of negotiation, uh, you need to have uh, at least uh, four to five months of of very careful preparation. Uh, what would normally happen is you would have negotiators uh, sit down and kind of uh, discuss uh, the issues uh, that are involved so that uh, the negotiators could, in fact, lay the groundwork 
for a summit between the principals. Uh, this is a little bit backwards, and so I'm just not quite sure how this is going to work. I, my, my sense is that uh, the best we could hope for is some kind of, of uh, uh, you know, photo op uh, opportunity for both uh, the principals in which they agree on a framework of issues to be discussed and then allow the negotiators from the key allies involved along with the United States to uh, proceed to actually negotiate a possible agreement. And we're going to have a, uh, we have a, we do have a new nominee for CI director, and she's going to be coming before the Senate soon, Gina Haspel. She worked for you, correct, when you were the director? She did. And uh, this week you're among 70 former top intelligence officials who backed her nomination. You were the signatory. Uh, one of the people signed a letter that said Ms. Haspel's qualifications to become CIA director match or exceed those of most candidates put forward in the agency's 70-year history. But Senator Dianne Feinstein told me the other day that she said, I'm not, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. She's, that's a quote. She said she has concerns about the role played in the agency's torture programs and the destruction of videotapes of waterboarding sessions. Uh, you two have, have gone back and forth on this for years. Why don't you share those same concerns as the senator? Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, the senator obviously has to uh, uh, be satisfied uh, with, uh, with Gina and uh, what role she played at that time. I mean, there, there were a lot of people involved at that time. It was right after 9-11, uh, Justice Department and uh, all the legal authorities uh, indicated that uh, you know that uh, these kinds of enhanced uh, interrogation techniques uh, met the requirements of the law at the time. Uh, I I did not agree with that. Uh, I, I thought it was torture. Uh, President Obama eliminated that, uh, and uh, I think uh, in my experience with Gina is that uh, you know she is someone who uh, has done a great job at the CIA. Uh, but I do believe that the Congress should look at her entire career to determine uh, whether or not she should become CIA director. When you look at her entire career, uh, I think uh, when, you, when you consider uh, uh, that role and the importance of having somebody who knows that role, I think she, uh, she would make uh, a very good director. Is this kind of a case of someone, she was sort of following orders there. I mean, she was, she was operating under the... Uh, belief that what they were doing was legal at the time based on the White House memos that they were... I think, I think as I recall, uh, Gina did not support, obviously, uh, some of these enhanced techniques, and, uh, and yet uh, at the time, obviously, it was the, you know, it, it was ruled as being legal. It's been investigated. Uh, no one has been prosecuted as a result of those investigations uh, by the Justice Department. So, uh, as I said, I, I just, uh, I would hope that the senators would look at her entire record uh, in, in order to make a determination uh, as to uh, her appointment. Now let's talk budget. For 16 years in Congress, Mr. Secretary, you made your, your mark as a budget expert, and you served in the Clinton administration's uh, budget director. And then there you want to fight with the people inside the administration, cut the deficit, which led to the Clinton administration leaving office with a budget surplus, which is, uh, I mean, that seems like a, a million years ago now. Um, this week, the, the, the nonpartisan the Congressional Budget Office, the kind of the, the, score, the scorekeeper on uh, budget issues, uh, said the country's going to have a trillion-dollar deficit for the next decade. This is the, one of the highest percentages of debt as a percentage of the gross d domestic product ever. The, the Trump folks say economic growth can make up that 
that uh, deficit. Do you believe that? And and what's the what's the should we be even concerned about this stuff? Well, Joe, there is there is no way that growth can uh, can take care of what is going to be a trillion dollar annual deficit. Not to mention the fact that we're looking at a twenty plus trillion dollar debt for this country. Uh, my experience on budgeting is that if you're serious about reducing the deficit, you've got to put everything on the table, uh, both spending and taxes. Uh, we did that uh, when I was in the Congress as uh, chairman of the Budget Committee uh, and when I was director of OMB uh, under the Clinton administration. Uh, we looked at uh, entitlement spending. We looked at uh, discretionary spending. We looked at defense spending. Uh, and we looked at taxes. Uh, we developed uh, significant budget deficit reduction plans uh, that were bipartisan, uh, and as a result of that, we got a balanced budget. Uh, if, if they're going to deal with this deficit, they've got to deal with the issues that have created that deficit. And right now, uh, neither party, frankly, is very interested in making the tough decisions that have to be made in order to apply fiscal discipline, uh, the kind of fiscal discipline that is really important to uh, to our economy and to our future. And what are those issues that they should be dealing with? They should be coming together on a comprehensive budget agreement. Uh, they should put entitlements on the table to determine how we control two-thirds of the federal budget, which is entitlements right now. Uh, we should put uh, uh, defense and non-defense spending on the table. We provided caps on that spending in the past, and they ought to look at doing the same thing. And very frankly, they ought to look at the need to raise revenues as part of that package. They're not going to deal with this deficit unless they put that kind of package together. That's what we did. We were successful at doing it. It was bipartisan. It was effective. We did it under President Bush. We did it under President Clinton. There's no reason why they can't do it now if they have the political courage to take on these issues. Another one of your uh, jobs at that time uh, was the chief of staff to Bill Clinton in his first term. Uh, you've described those early chaotic days of the Clinton administration as a youth soccer game where everybody kind of runs to the ball, you know, they kind of scrum around the, 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 uh, the ball. Uh, there's been a lot of chaos in the Trump White House and a president going off message. You know, you, you, you were lucky. You, Twitter wasn't invented when you were the chief of staff. Um, from one chief of staff uh, to another, What's, what's John Kelly doing wrong, and, and is there anything he can do to control a president who has his own sort of uh, pipeline to the world through Twitter? Well, John's doing the best he can. Uh, you know, I, he, he worked with me when I was at uh, Secretary of Defense, and uh, he's a good man. Uh, and he has tried to put in uh, a uh, chain of command at the White House. He's tried to apply better discipline. Uh, and I think he's been successful at doing that. The problem is he's got a principal who doesn't want to abide uh, by that kind of discipline. Uh, I had President Clinton who was willing to do that because he knew that we had to apply better discipline, and he knew it was important to his ability to be President of the United States. Uh, this president doesn't recognize uh, the importance of discipline and the importance of really abiding by the processes of developing policy. So he basically tweets his own views, and I think it's very tough to be a very good uh, you know, uh, chief of uh, uh, 
of the of the staff uh, at uh, the White House. How can you how can you do that job when you've got a president who decides to tweet whatever he wants to tweet to the world? So it's almost an impossible task, and I'm I'm not sure whether John is going to be able to survive that job as a result. Has he reached out to you for you know to to kick some ideas around with you to, about about? He, only initially when he first took that job, and uh, you know I thought I. I I've had a feeling that, uh, you know, he's facing, as he himself has said, probably the toughest job he's ever had in his career. He's had some tough jobs as a Marine general uh, in battle, so you can imagine how Jesus, tough Yeah, that's, that's saying something. Um, <clears throat> you're also an expert to, from the Clinton White House in dealing on scandal and sort of uh, uh, manufactured scandal. Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. What, uh, why should we care about Trump's alleged affair with Stormy Daniels. Is that something that we should care about, or is that fall into the, uh, who cares? Well, I, you know, I, I, always, I always think that uh, the President of the United States uh, is not just uh, the commander-in-chief. He's not just uh, the head of the country. Uh, but I also think that the President of the United States has to represent uh, the values of the country. Uh, the moral values of the country, and uh, the fact that uh, we always believe that presidents uh, ought to be truthful uh, in what they say. I mean, I, you know, presidents throughout our history uh, obviously have had their strengths and their weaknesses, uh, but the reality is that uh, they always upheld uh, certain moral values uh, that this country has always considered important. So, you know, I think that kind of behavior uh, is is important. Uh, it's something that uh, that obviously uh, should be resolved in terms of just exactly what took place here. Uh, I mean, we've done that in the past with other presidents who've had to resolve those kinds of issues, uh, and we need to do that today with this president. As we mentioned earlier, we have a, we're about to have a new national security team representing America. Uh, what, do you, what are your concerns, if any, about John Bolton as the na new uh, national security advisor, Mike Pompeo as the new secretary of state? Both these guys are hawks. What do you, what do you think of them? How, what, what, what are your concerns? Well, I've always been of the view that the uh, president ought to have uh, different views at the table, that uh, it really is important uh, not to just have a bunch of yes men around the table, uh, but to have people who represent different viewpoints. Uh, I, I've always considered presidents uh, to be strong presidents if they can listen to uh, opposing views uh, in trying to ar arrive at the decisions that have to be made for the country. Uh, and I think his national security team, uh, prior to what we see now, uh, really did represent a pretty good uh, set of views with uh, Tillerson as Secretary of State, uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, you had uh, McMaster as National Security Advisor, Pompeo, CIA Director. You had a pretty good mix of different views that were being presented to the president. Uh, now those views are much more limited, uh, and it puts a lot more pressure on people like Jim Mattis, uh, John Kelly, and others uh, to really try to uh, present to the president uh, a more traditional approach to uh, defense policy and to foreign policy. Uh, I, think, 
I think the biggest problem right now is that the president, uh, I think for whatever reason, has come to the conclusion that uh, he, can, he can operate pretty much on his own uh, and that he really doesn't have to listen to a lot of the advisors that uh, presidents should listen to. Uh, and so you've got a president who's got some people around him. Hopefully he will listen to, to those people, but uh, I think this is a president who's going to basically operate uh, by his gut instincts and what he thinks uh, ought, to, ought to be the right steps. And uh, that makes it very difficult to, uh, to have any kind of predictability with regards to this president and the future of the country. And <clears throat> California Governor Brown is uh, undecided still about whether to send the National Guard to the border. Should he? You, you, you've been on all sides of that. Uh, you know, you've been here in California. You've been, a, a, you know, a defense person. Uh, you, you know, national security very well. What and what's what should he be doing there? Well, I think I think the governor has to uh, make the decision based on what he thinks is important for California uh, in terms of uh, protecting the border. I mean, I uh, I don't think it's out of the question that. Uh, you know, he would decide to uh, have some National Guard go to the border and, tr and supplement the efforts in terms of border security uh, pursuant to uh, the limits uh, and the requirements that the governor wants to place uh, on those individuals. Uh, you know, th th there's no question we have uh, security problems at the border. Uh, the problem is, and the thing that concerns me the most, is that uh, troops alone are not going to solve the issues of immigration. Uh, what is really needed is comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, we need to deal with security issues. We need to deal with legalization issues. We need to deal with the workforce issues. We need to d deal with the, the root causes of uh, why we have so much immigration taking place. None of those things have been considered for almost over 30 years uh, in Washington. Uh, and until we do that, uh, you know, uh, putting a few troops on the border is not going to solve this problem. Um, <clears throat> Mrs. Panetta, I want to ask you, but at the, at the Panetta Institute, you, you see a lot of young people interested in, in uh, policy. Uh, and um, you, I, correct me if I remember, you originally started the Institute in part because you saw so many people were sort of cynical about politics. How has that changed at all? And, and what's drawing people in now? And also, are you seeing more women involved? We have a record number of women running for office. What's what's changed in, in the people you see coming through the, uh, the Institute over there all these years? Well, what I've seen, I don't know that it's a change. Uh, I can only tell you from my experience in uh, running the Institute here is that there are a lot of young women who are very interested in policy and politics. What I've seen in young people in general, is that they come um, eager to learn. There's an eagerness. And uh, we bring in speakers that present all different views uh, that are knowledgeable on issues. These speakers uh, help open uh, the doors uh, that allows these students to walk through and learn and then engage and then um, become leaders themselves. We try to keep in touch with these students as much as possible. And we have students that, first of all, 
are going on to graduate school or law school, which we encourage. Secondly, they are becoming involved in, <coughs> excuse me, in local politics, state politics, uh, and national politics. They are interested in learning more so that they can become leaders. And that's our goal, is to teach young people to become leaders. And are the young women there, are they uh, involved uh, because of what they've seen over the last year or something else? That's what many uh, uh, young female, con or not even young, uh, the women uh, candidates of all ages have been telling me over the last several months. What, what are you hearing? Um, we have seen the, I'm, I'm sitting here at a table right now in our conference room and I'm looking out at uh, photographs of the different classes of our leadership seminar and also of our congressional interim program. And I'm seeing equal numbers of men and women. And this is true of the past, uh, I'd say, uh, almost 20 years. Oh. We have always had an equal number of women to men participating in our programs. Um, I don't know if that's part of the CSU system. Um, I do know that we encourage uh, young women to uh, to become involved with our programs, um, but I I what I'm seeing here and what we have done these past 20 years is work with both men and women. Mm -hmm. um, one one last question and thank you both for your time. Uh, this is a, a, a now that you have a little bit more time uh, uh, you know together. Um, well, actually, I have two more questions. How did you, this is a, a relationship that, that's been spanning uh, not only, uh, you know, 50 years of marriage, 50 plus years of marriage, but uh, bi-coastal for a lot of that time. How were you able to do that all these years? Well, we, we you know, we, we've always uh, approached, uh, you know, our, our work together and uh, our marriage as partners and, uh have always felt that uh, that was important. Sylvia, when I when I ran for Congress, uh, uh, ran my campaigns for Congress, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also uh, on a volunteer uh, basis ran my offices in the district. She was my chief of staff, really in the district. Uh, and um, as as a result of that, uh, you know, she was very much involved uh, with the operations of the congressional office. Uh, and that was true throughout my political career. Uh, yeah, there have, there's no question. There's been, uh, you know, absences where I uh, had to go back to Washington, but uh, I always considered uh, this area to be my home, uh, and uh, Sylvia has uh, always, frankly, been my, my presence in the district and mm -hmm. presence uh, here in this area. Uh, we, as you may know, Jimmy is now, uh, a congressman from yep. the same Your district. son, or son Jimmy Panetta, go ahead. Jimmy Panetta. Uh, and it's interesting that Jimmy comments that wherever he goes, he finds people who uh, appreciate the fact that uh, we provided services to them. And uh, that's because uh, Sylvia ran the offices here and really cared about the people here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I cared about uh, trying to serve the people here as well. So, uh, this has always been our home. Uh, I was born in Monterey. This is where we raised our boys. Uh, and uh, I You live in your parents' home, correct? Yeah, no, no. It was uh, my yeah. parents' home, and I was born here. Uh, but 
more importantly, this has always been our home. And I think uh, uh, both of us uh, really feel that uh, by, by virtue of this being our home uh, and now having this Institute of Public Policy here, that in many ways we are serving uh, the people uh, and the students that we care about uh, in terms of uh, making sure that our democracy is well served in the future. Okay, and one final question, Mrs. Panetta. Uh, your your husband's uh, dad came to this country. He was a, he was a chef. That's how he initially made his living uh, here. What is Leon's best dish? Can he make a good brujol? He makes wonderful gnocchi from scratch. Really? Oh, okay. All right. Does a beautiful job on that, and I think that's one of our favorite dishes. <laughs> Still make you make it with the fork. You twist it with the fork, correct? With his finger and the fork, Finger yeah. and fork, okay. Very good. That's old school. All right. Mr. and Mrs. Spinetta, thank you so much. Secretary, Ms. Spinetta, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Grazie. Mille grazie. All right, Joe. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, that was, a, that was a trip around the world with the Panettas. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank several people. First, I'd like to thank uh, Leon Panetta, Sylvia Panetta for giving us their time today. I'd like to thank Brittany Shell who produced this podcast. And I'd like to point you once again to the Commonwealth Club. They will ha- be honoring the Panettas and several other folks on April 19th. I think tickets are still available. Uh, whether you're the director of the CIA or the secretary of defense, you know it's all political. been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlove, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's all political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on bass. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle Podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts, plural, or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services.